Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Thursday, June 3rd, 2021. I'm John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. John. Uh, senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. Associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And joining us today, tech commentary columnist James B. Meggs, who not only has a column in the June issue of Commentary, as he does in every issue of Commentary, um, uh, this one on, on what we call citizen science, about which more later, but he also is the author of our cover story, Thank God for Big Pharma. And uh, as it turns out, I think we are going to be able to bring these two separate pieces into a grand alliance as we discuss uh, the story of the week, the month, and potentially the year, which is the growing um, sense that uh, we too re- easily and readily dismissed the possibility that um, that the coronavirus, uh, the COVID-19 um, resulted as, uh, came about as the result of a leak from the Wuhan Institute of Virology Lab. Um, and, um, and so Jim, just to, we'll get to that, but uh, just to get to the, thank God for big pharma, a piece I have been wanting to do for years and that the, and that the, um, the creation, uh, simultaneous multiple creations of the vaccines to ward off uh, COVID-19, maybe one of the greatest stories in the history of science. It's not, not only scientific discovery, but the practical application of science uh, to um, to save potentially millions and millions of lives and to put uh, put a world economy that had gone off the rails back on the rails um, and uh, and this this was all done in the space as you as you relay of um, I don't know eight months yeah ten months? months right ten months right, right. extraordinary yeah. one of the most extraordinary accomplishments in the history of applied science. And, you know, when they were starting to look into vaccines, a lot of experts thought it would take, uh, it would take a couple of years to get a vaccine approved. And the FDA said that they would happily uh, approve a vaccine that was only 50% effective, because even 50% could do a lot to slow down uh, a pandemic. And then in the end, they got vaccines that were Roughly ninety-five percent effective in in about ten months. So it was it was it was an extraordinary accomplishment, even beyond what the experts expected. And in my piece, what I try to explain is this didn't just happen because a lot of people all of a sudden got together and said, "Let's make a vaccine because we have a, a global emergency." It happened because all kinds of investors had poured billions and billions of dollars into this research, into uh, this mRNA uh, technology that allows the drug makers to insert little strands of RNA, which is the kind of the instruction uh, uh, partner to to DNA into human cells. And then the cells can respond in various ways. that that would allow them to develop the, or your body to develop antibodies to some uh, or to recognize some foreign invader like a virus, and this technology can be used for a lot of other good things too. But 
they couldn't have done this from a standing start. The only reason that Moderna um, and, and uh, here in the US and BioNTech in Germany were able to do this so quickly was because of this system under which all of these venture capitalists, investors had poured all this money into this research. Many of the different uh, treatments that Moderna had been working on over the years had not worked. In fact, if this hadn't, if the if the vaccine hadn't worked, there's a good chance the company would have gone bankrupt after raising billions of dollars in investment over over 10 years or so. So what I'm trying to argue is that we need to be careful not to short circuit this system in which people invest in drug companies with the hopes of getting filthy rich. That's very offensive to some people, but that's how this research happened. There was no government agency doing this. The government agencies, NIH in particular, do a lot of great work that helps in, in identifying possible drugs. But the work of actually handling all this technology, manufacturing these delicate vaccines, rolling out these massive testing programs, this is not something the government really does, and we need private industry to do it. So that's the that's the thank God for big pharma. Thank God for big pharma investors. Right. Well, so you you tell the story of Moderna and its uh, French CEO, right, um, who goes uh, leaves a much larger firm to go to Moderna in 2011, and as right. you say. He warned his wife that the technique, this was what Moderna was. Moderna is an mRNA research firm. It, its entire focus, as is the case with many um, pharmaceutical companies that have come into existence in the last 20 or 30 years, is that they, they center on one drug or one approach, in part because it's so unimaginably expensive to take a theoretical construct of a drug and bring it to market as it takes seven years of testing it take whatever it, whatever it's going to take and so the notion that they can have multiple product lines when any individual product might cost a billion or two billion dollars just to get to market so a lot of companies that people haven't even heard of have a diabetes drug or they have a you know they have an alzheimer's drug or something like that and the failure rate is very high the failure rate, sometimes they don't work. Sometimes they end up pr pr proving to be toxic in ways that make the risk not worth the reward. And so what you have is they exist because there are people in the world willing to bet on the come, right? Willing to say, here, I'm going to give you $200 million for this. We may lose it all, but if we win, you know, we're going to make 10 or 20 or 50 times what we gave you over time. That is a classic investment strategy. It is a long-term, this is exactly what people talk about, right? When they talk about uh, the problem with modern capitalism now is that it's all in the short term. It's all betting on the next quarter. People are only interested in, in, in manipulating the stock price or getting the stock price up. For the pharmaceutical play, the investment play and the management and all that is a long-term investment in an enormous uh, you know, with, an, with a potentially enormous payoff or a complete loss. And there isn't that much in between. Right. No one invests as a venture capitalist in these fields looking for a nice, respect, 
respectable 5% return. If you want that, you know, you buy bonds. This is more like the venture capital investing in Silicon Valley, where people are hoping to get the unicorn, you know, the, the company that, that returns 50x on or, or, or more on your investment. So in order to do that, they might invest in, in 20 companies and be perfectly happy if only one of them ultimately is a success, if it's a runaway success. They, the, the numbers aren't quite that bad in, in drug development, but they're very challenging. There's one uh, a British um, uh, pharmacology expert that, whose paper I quoted in the piece, who says that he knows quite a few people who've spent their entire careers in drug uh, development and retire without ever having worked on a successful product. I know people. I mean, I personally, I have friends and acquaintances who are literally in this position. Often they're brought in to help manage because this is a long haul. So there's a, you know, they have to switch CEOs or CFOs or something like that as the product is laboriously brought to market. And, you know, and, and they are not assured of, they are far from assured of success, um, which gets us to why we want to talk about the, the, the theme, the thank God for big pharma theme here, which is that the classic way people have been talking about healthcare over the last 30 years, really, I would say since the famous special election in Pennsylvania in 1991, um, when, uh, and I'm now bl- blanking on the Senate, the senatorial candidate's name, um, who served a single term, but uh, Richard Thornburg was running for Senate and a Democrat, James Carville, made his reputation running a senatorial campaign uh, in Pennsylvania on the subject of healthcare and saying that the healthcare system was, you know, bloated and was unfair, blah, 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 blah. blah. And suddenly healthcare became a major political issue. And there have been two strands of this issue, one of which is about healthcare, about insurance companies. And the other strand, which is, I think, the more troubling and the more worrisome, is the strand that focuses on pharmaceutical companies and demonizes them. And you quote in the piece, uh, you know, very importantly, you quote Bernie Sanders saying, pharmaceutical companies are trying to rob us blind. They are profiteers. They are profiteering. And there's a lot of people who are looking at this pandemic and saying, oh, boy, I can make a lot of money off of this. And of course, this is where socialism runs off the rails, right? Because um, when in the annals of human history has anybody, would anybody have said, here's something that needs to happen with unbelievable speed to save millions of lives and bring our economy back. Let's make sure that the people who do this are rewarded with untold riches. When, When in the course of human history has anyone actually said, I don't want you to get rich for saving 5 million lives. The problem is always whether somebody gets rich because they're a predator, they, they play predatory capitalist games. This is not profiteering. This is profit making for a gigantic social good. But Bernie Sanders and people like him cannot see that, or if they can, they choose deliberately not to in order to make an ideological point. 
But wasn't there, there was a brief moment, wasn't there? Remember when everyone lined up outside one of the factories, when the trucks were leaving the factory with the first doses of vaccine and, and the media was covering people applauding the trucks leaving. And I had this weird, naive hope that maybe we were past that Bernie Sanders, you know, if you make profit, you're evil moment. And there was for a month or so, some enthusiasm along the lines of, wait a minute, yeah, they might've made Oxycontin, but look at what they've made now. Big Pharma's great again, but did, uh, it's a good question for Jim. Was that always a fiction or did it just dissipate quickly because we went back to the comfortable narratives? I think that was over that afternoon, pretty much. Um, <laughs> so what, 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 what Sanders said in that debate with Biden back when the pandemic was really just getting going also was that, that um, you know, Big Pharma is taking advantage of people and the, there's a cost in human lives. And as so, he so often does, he gets the issue ex entirely backwards. New drugs are the most cost-effective way to help extend human lives and save lives, even though they're very expensive. If you came up with a drug that could say, delay the onset of diabetes, it would save the healthcare system hundreds of billions of dollars over, over, over a decade or more. You know, in every case where you can treat a serious chronic condition with a drug, the drug, even if it's expensive, is so much less expensive than the treatment. But pharma comes in for a lot of resentment for a couple of reasons. One is that it's a little more transparent to the end user. You know, you see the price of those drugs, you might have a copay. So it's frustrating or sometimes infuriating to see these high prices. Also, the system of pricing drugs is completely bonkers. Like so many things in healthcare, a combination of the way insurance companies work, the regulatory environment has created this, these incentives for obfuscation. So um, um, there, there's a whole system where you have these brokers who work for the health plans, who negotiate prices with the, uh, the drug companies, and then, uh, and then, those prices are paid, but then huge rebates. Then the drug company gives them huge rebates. Those rebates flow back to the health plans. And in effect, eventually those rebates flow back to the consumer. So that gives the, uh, the drug companies incentives to put absurdly high list prices on their drugs that no one really pays and uh, or almost no one pays, but it's a, but it's a scary number or, and it can make these guys look really horrible and greedy. And some of them really are, but, but that, you know, that, certainly is the, that certainly isn't unique to the pharma industry. The second reason I think this is offensive to people is there's just this moral intuition people have that there's this moral intuition that it's somehow wrong to make money off someone else's misfortune. You know, that that's just inherently bad. So in a weird way, the more lives a drug company might save with a new drug, the more they're vilified. So, I mean, you know, what's obscene about that is, of course, that they they made money off of um, not of the, not off of misfortune, but off of the opposite, off of off of you know saving people's lives. Um, and this the this whole attitude that was highlighted. There's this piece that went around in uh, CNN Business a week, a week or so ago about how the vaccine has created nine new billionaires, <clears throat> and this is not a celebration. Uh, needless to say, of of you know these deserving uh, 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 billion billionaires who have saved uh, lives. It's um, uh, to quote the piece. It says, 
Activists said the wealth generation highlighted the stark inequality that has resulted from the pandemic. The nine new billionaires are worth a combined 19.3 billion, enough to fully vaccinate some 780 million people in low income countries, campaigners said. Quote, these billionaires are the human face of the huge profits many pharmaceutical corporations are making from the monopoly they hold on these vaccines. Anne Marriott from Oxfam said. They don't know how it's made. They don't know what a monopoly is. They don't know what the industry consists of. It would be easier to take these progressives at face value, you know, the suggestion that they're just hostile to the, to the pricing around new drugs. If they weren't completely, entirely hostile to the repurposing of generic molecules for new purposes yeah. in the exact same field, in the exact same industry, their hostility is toward profit, period. Right, right. now my, progress. my, yeah, so when, when, um, you know, this started in the 1970s. I mean, there were the first efforts to sort of get a national healthcare system uh, was Hubert Humphreys really in the 1970s. But when it came back, roaring back, um, you know, basically in, in, in the 2000s and when Obama became president and all of that, the thing that I feared most was not the creation of a national healthcare system like the NHS. Uh, in, in, in England, uh, because that would mean that, you know, doctors would, uh, doctors would essentially become employees of some quasi, in some quasi-governmental way with capped salaries and stuff like that. I mean, I think that would be bad, but that wasn't what I thought was the terrifying aspect of this push. The terrifying aspect of this push involved questions about capping drug prices on the one hand, uh, or 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 capping this stuff on the and 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 uh, interference with the creation of medical devices on the other, which was a very big aspect. It came in; it was part of Obamacare, and almost instantly, it was as though once Obamacare passed, people were like, "Oh no, we know that's not what we meant. Like we we didn't mean that you shouldn't develop new versions of CPAP machines." Or, 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 or injectors, you know, that would make it possible for you to deal with, you know, insulin more readily at home or anything like that. That's not what we meant. Somehow it slipped in there. But in general, the world in which, uh, in which healthcare is run, effectively run by the government is a world in which there is no, almost no healthcare innovation. We have come down to a point at which the United States and Switzerland, which does have a have a national healthcare, but it's a very weird country and very small and has its own set of weird uh, homogeneous things. Um, we are the world's engine for uh, all of this stuff that has made life vastly more livable over the last 60, 70 years. I mean, livable, every- survivable. Well, right, exactly. Statins, right? Which, uh, which have probably saved... People don't even know how many lives have been saved by statins. I mean, not not say you know like extended, right? Because everybody eventually dies. But um, statins have probably extended the lives of close to 100 million people on this planet. Um, all kinds of things. Bill Gates is great. You know the 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 effort to um to find uh, cures for malaria. You know, which is uh, largely the work of Paul Offit at the University of Pennsylvania. I mean, in the American system. We, we, we have a system that rewards innovation. And there is, a, there is an entire line of very successful argument that wishes to destroy that. And it is terrifying because it's not clear to me 
if that's destroyed, where the next thing comes from, which brings up the second point in the piece that I want to talk about, which is the Biden proposal to lift patent uh, protections for the mRNA uh, uh, vaccines, um, which is a proposal. Uh, it's very unclear that it's actually going to any. It's going to really go anywhere, in part because, for one thing, uh, BioNTech, which is one of the, of course, patent holders here, uh, Pfizer's partner, uh, is not an American company, and uh, America doesn't own the. You know, I mean, Germany is saying no, 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 no. We're not. We, you're not going anywhere near BioNTech. This is like the greatest thing that's happened in Germany in years. You're not going anywhere near our patent. Um, but but let's talk about why that happened, why Biden sort of st stands up and announces that he wants to lift the patent protection, which is ordinarily, I think, 17 years. Is that right? Or do I have that number right? I, I, I don't know the intricacies yeah. of the global uh, patent agreement. No, the American but, patent agreement, right? Oh, is, is... I think it's usually about 20 years, but it's but it but with most drugs, it takes eight or 10 years to get it to market. So the the period under which a drug maker can make money in, in the US market is usually somewhere around a decade. That's why there's there, that's why you see so much uh, of an intensive push to get these market these drugs marketed and out in the marketplace as, as quickly as possible. But I, I should note that on this question of, of lifting patent protections internationally, uh, the current issue of commentary has a great article by uh, Michael Rosen that really goes into this in depth. And he's, he's a patent attorney, much more knowledgeable about it than I am. But I think we both echo the, the same point that this is just bonkers. Uh, it won't help get the vaccines distributed more quickly because it's not the formula for the vaccine that's the tricky part. It's the, the incredibly complex and delicate technology to manufacture these vaccines at scale that is extremely difficult. Moderna worked on this for years. And, and the in order to really lift a patent, you don't just have to make the formula available, they're the advocates for this in the World Trade Organization are demanding what they call a technology transfer. You've got to send your experts over to India or wherever and show them how to set up the, your factory, the factory to build this, which means that they'll also have a head start. They may not know everything that you know, all of your trade secrets and how you develop this technology, but they'll have a huge head start then in competing against you when it comes to other products that use that use this technology. So you're really undermining these businesses in the long term without really speed, but this without really speeding up the production of, of the vaccines. And I think it reflects something you often see from progressives. They're often more excited about punishing their enemies than they are about really helping the people they claim to want to help. They wouldn't put it that way. They don't necessarily see it that way. But if you watch how they make policy, it's it's it you know it, it's like Bernie always saying that we're going to fix this by punishing someone. We're not. We're going to fix this by helping you. We're going to fix this by hurting them. Now, uh, let's let let's move into the geopolitical aspect of this because uh, this is a big uh, topic for you. Um, you know, uh, BioNTech is 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 not an American company. Um, but Moderna is, and uh, and uh, Pfizer is, and Johnson and Johnson is, and um, 
this is a matter should be a matter of great national pride to us that we pulled this off uh, nationally. Um, almost nothing anymore um, resonates with this notion of feeling proud uh, of national accomplishments like the space program or even like being the country that has the tallest building in the world or being the country that Charles Lindbergh was from when he flew across the you know, Atlantic for the first, whatever. These, these uh, individ sometimes individual acts or whatever are things that then say something about the country that you are from um, that, that fill you or can swell you with pride, right? But for some reason, we can't do that with this. But in soft power terms, the opportunity that we have to cure the world, uh, to cure the world's coronavirus crisis through the application of American soft power, using Pfizer and these companies to manufacture these, these drugs that we then send these syringes that have American flags on them. Why, what, what explain- Well, because politics is frankly incompatible with the execution of a competent geostrategy, both on the left and the right, a fashionable persecution complex prevents them from embracing American achievement. American achievement is antithetical to the idea that you are oppressed and persecuted by forces beyond your control. It is the way in which both left and right achieve political power today. It dominates Fox News primetime. It dominates MSNBC. It is the language of political power today. And yet, people who do find themselves behind the resolute desk are in tasked with advancing American interests, and these vaccines present a profound interest. China has been has came to market with a vaccine for uh, what they said was this pandemic, more likely a generic coronavirus, um, and started ex exporting it immediately and has exported a lot of it, much around the, much to the developing world. And in the interim, we found out that it doesn't really work. Um, both of their candidates, according to Chinese officials, oddly enough, admitted that the efficacy of at least one of their vaccines is somewhere around 50%, which really isn't all that great. A lot of these places, places like... Um, I think it's the Maldives or maybe the Seychelles um, are almost entirely vaccinated and yet are experiencing coronavirus spikes, COVID spikes, in part because these vaccines are not as uh, effective as you would think they would be. They're withholding of this information about efficacy to uh, institutions like WHO. And um, the entire, you know, the basis for this is obviously a soft power play to, to demonstrate the beneficence China, of China, China, China soft power to demonstrate the beneficence of China and its um, its industrial power and might and uh, scientific know-how, and um, this in combination with the revivified interest in a lab leak theory prevent, presents a, a great opportunity for the West and the United States in particular to advance its interest at the expense of China. Um, geopolitics is in many ways a zero-sum game, and if you don't play it, you lose. Okay, so uh, we, we should and, get to- And Joe Biden, should... to his credit, has committed to playing this, um, to exporting this vaccine and, and generating soft power as a result of it, but it's also investigating ways in which it can abrogate intellectual property rights in the process, which would seem to be two very contradictory um, approaches. Right, well, we should get to the lab leak hypothesis and, 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 and some other issues, uh, but first, um, I, I just want to, uh, Noah is a, a great cook, uh, something that people don't uh, really know, but Noah often sends us sort of like Instagram-like photographs of his, uh, the delicious food that he, that he uh, creates for his, uh, for his family. 
And, um, and so I think uh, he, more than any of us maybe uh, should hear uh, me talk about Made In, our new advertiser. How does your favorite restaurant consistently make such delicious food? The short answer, they have access to the right kitchen tools. With Made In's professional quality cookware and kitchenware, anyone is capable of making restaurant quality food at home. If you're serious about cooking, you should invest in your kitchen tools. Made In's cookware and kitchenware products are used by thousands of the world's best chefs. If quality and craftsmanship is important to you, you should check out Made In, cookware and kitchenware brand that works with renowned chefs and artisans to produce some of the world's best pots, pans, knives, and wine glasses. This is professional quality cookware and knives for those who love to cook. They source the finest materials and partner with renowned craftsmen to make premium kitchen tools available directly to you without the markup. Made in products are made to last. They offer a lifetime guarantee. Their cookware distributes heat evenly and can easily go from the stovetop to the oven and their knives are fully forged, perfectly balanced, stay sharp, 28,000 and more five-star reviews and their products used by some of the world's best chefs at Michelin-starred restaurants around the world. Made in better cookware for better meals. And right now, Made In is offering our listeners 15% off your first order with promo code COMMENTARY. This is the best discount available anywhere online for Made In products. Go to madeincookware.com slash commentary and use promo code COMMENTARY for 15% off your first order. That's madeincookware.com slash commentary. Use promo code COMMENTARY. So uh, this morning, uh, an unlikely source... I would say, surprising source, um, Blockbuster article released this morning by Vanity Fair by Catherine Eban about the lab leak hypothesis, which is a history, which tells a history and an internal history of the U.S. government's um, uh, relations to the question of where the virus, the coronavirus originated. And it's very rich, it's an important long piece and we do, I don't have time to summarize it, nor should I. Um, I'm just gonna read you one paragraph that is uh, startling. Um, quote, in an internal memo obtained by Vanity Fair, Thomas Denano, former acting assistant secretary of the State Department's Bureau of Arms Control, Verification and Compliance, wrote, that staff from two bureaus, his own and the Bureau of International Security and Nonproliferation, quote, warned, unquote, leaders within his bureau, quote, not to pursue an investigation into the origin of COVID-19, unquote, because it would, quote, open a can of worms if it continued. So uh, we have here a, uh, something that we've been sort of, uh, people have been dancing around which is this question of whether or not the supposed gain of function research, that is when you take uh, a virus or you take something and, you, and you, you test because you want to figure out how to cure, you know, how to find a, a cure for it, a disease, whatever, a virus, and you make it more virulent in order to, you know, you hype it up to see what can kill it best. Um, that this very controversial research, uh, a moratorium was placed on it by the US government after some worrisome successes in gain of function research suggested that kind of like the plot of Stephen King's The Stand, in labs, 
things were happening that were incredibly dangerous and that would there, there was it was not we do not have reliable enough controls to make sure that they wouldn't leave the building that something like this actually happened at the Wuhan Institute of Virology which was a extant theory we know it was in early 2020 Tom Cotton talked about it and all of that and that there was a concerted effort that is laid out in the piece to suppress talk about this, research into it, and 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 focus on it. Not because when we talk about this, we want to do this so that we can beat China or something like that. It is, look, if the coronavirus that has has killed you know three million people so far, and you know, and or however many it is, with thirty five million people sick across the world, if it is was not actually something that was naturally occurring in a cave that jumped from a bat to a human, how we need to think about this pandemic response going forward is an entirely different matter. Obviously we are living in a world, a terrifying world, if it's the jump from animal to human that we need to, you know, we're gonna need to be on. But if it's not, if this was an accident, how we respond going forward is an entirely different matter, Abe. But John, I don't, <clears throat> I don't know that it's any less terrifying, to be honest with you, if it's, if it's um, a lab accident. Because one, one of the things that uh, the piece pointed out that was probably uh, known before, but unknown to me, was that there has been something like four leaks um, of coronavirus uh, from research labs in China pr prior to this. So the frightening thing is that this could happen with potentially with more frequency than the once in a century uh, pandemic that uh, prior to this kind of technology. Well, there, there, there have been leaks in the United States over the last 20 years, as the piece explains. Like this is, you know, you're playing with fire. Somebody in the piece says, this is like going to look for a gas leak with a match, like you know that 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 if your gain of function has the you know is a is a is a very problematic way of going about this uh, uh, sort of thing. And um, and while the piece very carefully is structured for the Vanity Fair audience to say Trump is terrible and he's an arsonist and you know uh, he screwed everything up. In fact, it was Trump officials like our old friend David Fife, who was quoted in the piece, like Mike Pompeo, like- like uh, Oh, Robert uh, Redfield, who says Robert he Redfield. received threats from the scientific community. Look, I think it's incumbent on us to be a little more cautious about um, ascribing this sort of thing to a stand-like scenario where a Chinese equivalent of Charlie Campion let this thing out. That's a straw man that people who want to shut down investigations into this sort of thing lean heavily into up to and including our, our own saintly NIH official, Anthony, Fa or Anthony Fauci, who's on television this morning going to the mattresses, uh, essentially in defense of China, saying things like we should not be, quote, accusatory towards the, the People's Republic because that will force them to clam up and they won't share information that they're already not sharing. Now, that would make it more difficult to get to the bottom of this thing. And also, in an appearance on CNN, simply dismissing the idea that, quote, it, it, he said, quote, it's quite far-fetched that the Chinese deliberately engineered something so that they could kill themselves as well as other people. That's a straw man. 
That is not the allegation. And if we begin, if we talk about this sort of thing, like it's a bioweapon, this is exactly what the people who want to shut down this conversation right. uh, lean into. And the conspiracy theorists also embrace rather heavily. No, well, well, the that's, a, that's a complete yeah. misapprehension of what the allegation is. Right. Well, I mean, in, in effect, right, Tom Cotton said, we need to look into whether or not there was an accident. Steve Bannon and this lunatic Chinese rich guy that he was fooling around with wanted to claim that it was a bioweapon. What, what, what I'm saying is that the terror of gain of function is the terror of an industrial accident, not a bioweapon, right? It is, it, it is, it is this notion that what, what happened here is a version of an industrial accident only in, in, on, on, in a lab. Right, an industrial accident, as the piece itself says, um, when when Three Mile Island happened in 1979, it set back new, the use of nuclear energy by a generation, if not two. Still, it's still it's still set. It's still frozen to this day. Uh, support for nuclear power. Right. Yeah. So right, and so so you know what we have here is 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 the sort of thing where. Yeah, Fauci saying we shouldn't be going around saying that it was a bioweapon um, is is really, I mean, you know, I know we don't like Fauci. I have problems with Fauci and all of that. Um, this is the first time that I actually would accuse him of actual cravenness and, and, and a deliberately obfuscating strategy here, uh, because that is that everybody who is serious about the lab leak hypothesis is not going around saying China did it on purpose. You can tell from the quotes by the head of the virology lab and everything like that, that something terrifying happened there that scared them to death and scared just... the government to death and all of that. And they didn't do it on purpose. Nobody did it. But did they maybe gin up the, did they take, uh, did they bioengineer a version of a of a of a virus in order to see what ways it could be killed that seems not only does it seem plausible it's been happening for 20 years and it's something that is so controversial that we basically stopped doing it in the United States in 2013-2014. Catherine Evans' piece alleges that conflicts of interest stemming from our government grants and support of controversial viral uh, research in China and elsewhere stopped us, prevented us from fully investigating this theory. And Anthony Fauci's conduct this morning is indicative of that conflict of interest. It is well beyond the remit of any public health bureaucrat to engage publicly on television in geopolitical grand strategy. No one elected you to that position. You are not in the right. State Department. This right. is not your job. <laughs> Shut up. Jim, <laughs> Jim, your second piece in commentaries, June issue, uh, which I think it's called The Glories of Citizen Science. I can't actually remember what right. superlative we used for the title, I apologize. But it's about citizen science and this cat, Catherine Eben piece focuses in part on a collection of ragtag researcher, you know, un, unaffiliated and unconnected researchers all over the place who thought that what they were hearing and seeing did not make sense uh, about this note, the natural, the hypothesis that this was a naturally occurring virus. Right. And that they came together in chat groups and on Zoom and this and that to go through the data. And, and, and this is an example of the kind of citizen science that you, you're, you focus mo mostly right. on ornithology right. in your piece. 
because because of your own interest in orthology but let's talk about citizen science a little bit here yeah so for over a century there's been a tradition and really going back to the dawn of science of amateurs doing all kinds of important work in especially in fields where individuals can acquire data on their own like astronomy you know you can point your telescope up in the sky or bird watching where people count birds and collect various kinds of data that can be useful for science but what we're seeing here in this covid era is something that's similar to that but also different in a scary way the reason all of these freelance people many of whom were were significant experts in their different corners of the field the reason they had to start working in this ad hoc way is because our global and national institutions were broken. The, the World Health Organization was not only not pursuing this research, they were, they were blocking it. The, uh, our domestic organizations, as this EBAN piece really shows, were, were not just not pursuing these leads about, uh, about problems at, in, in the Wuhan laboratory, they were discouraging the exploration of this problem, or there were conflicts inside the different government agencies between the, the people who wanted to pursue it and those who didn't. So, and our mainstream media organizations, uh, and even in many mainstream science organizations like the Lancet Medical Journal, they all came together as well to fight what they saw as this, um, this, you know, scary Trumpian crazy conspiracy claim. And as you say, Noah, in order to make this case that the claim was ridiculous and scary, they had to exaggerate it first. They had to say, oh, you guys, all you crazy Trumpians think it's a, a bioweapon, when most of the people arguing this weren't saying any such thing. They were saying, yeah, it was a, a form of an industrial accident. So these groups of individual researchers were combing through papers. They were bringing a lot of data science to bear. They were looking at the genome and trying to figure out does it show signs of having evolved from a natural virus into, into something workable? Or does it look like, as, as one researcher at the Harvard-MIT Broad Institute says, this woman, Alina Chan, that I've been following for a long time, she says it, it, um, it looked like it was pre-adapted to human transmission with no sign of how that, that, that adaptation took place through a sequence, uh, you know, passing through a sequence of animals on its way to people. So I find it both encouraging and alarming that in the absence of the of really vigorous pursuit of this possibility on the part of the people that we should be trusting to help keep us safe and investigate these things, you had all these people, some of whom were amateurs, some of whom were experts, but all of them working outside of normal channels. They had to really be the ones to push and break this story into the open. And that, but that issue of censorship, which you bring up is really important. And it's one of the things that's made the public's understanding of what happened with the outbreak and also how we've handled the outbreak more difficult to deal with than it than it should have been. So it wasn't just, I think citing the Lancet is important. The Lancet shut down the institutional gates looking into any sort of lab leak hypothesis. But then you had and you had mainstream media kind of piling on. But then you also had, you know, 
social media platforms banning people who even brought it up. So a lot of the discussion, and this is where I think Noah's point about it, there being a lot of crazy on, on both sides of this issue is, is also really important because you couldn't have an honest discussion except among kind of, as you say, Jim, a sort of ragtag group of interested amateurs because the, the, the paranoia on both sides of the horseshoe was vast enough that, that the conversation literally couldn't happen in public. And in that sense, I think, to go back to some of the issues we were talking about with the with the equity stuff with with the patents and whatnot the ideological insistence which can be amplified immediately on in, through mainstream media and social media platforms doesn't allow for certain conversations to even begin we used to have them and fight about them in public and now we can't even have them we can't even start them i mean we have uh, this interesting case in the piece of uh, peter dazak or dazak i don't know d-a-s-z-a-k um, uh, who uh, basically is an aggregator of grants. So according to the piece, he, he, his organization, the name of which I, I can't Eco, find the, the Eco Health Alliance. The Eco Health Alliance has, has managed uh, to sort of get itself about $15 million a year, a lot of it, at least a fifth of it or a fourth of it from the U.S. government. And then, and then it takes it and distributes the grants around the world to pursue gain of function research that the US government itself does not apparently feel comfortable funding, right? There was a moratorium, the moratorium has been lifted, but this money essentially is raised, goes to the Eco Health Alliance, is then distributed outward. And this gives Dazek, or however you pronounce his name, an enormous amount of sway in the virology epidemiology community because he is distributing largesse. And as a result, he is the guy who organized this letter to the Lancet that said it is basically evil to imagine that this wasn't uh, a naturally occurring animal to human jump. Uh, an act of almost unimaginable conflict, you know, that f represents an almost unimaginable conflict of interest. Because of course, when he did this, it was February of 2020, he had no idea whether that hypothesis was true or not. What he knew was how incredibly dangerous this was. And again, this is where the cover-up isn't worse than the disease, obviously, because the disease is, you know, has, has killed millions of people. But in a world in which we had pursued, this had been pursued honestly, the idea would have been nobody here was up to anything nefarious. The effort here was to figure out ways to make sure that viral outbreaks didn't happen by using this research. And, and if it ends up that something happened that was terrible, yes, people are gonna have to be held responsible, but everybody was trying to pursue a scientific end, which was to help humanity, not harm it. And now we are gonna spend a generation fighting and dealing with this whole question of whether or not this bureaucratic um, you know, uh, creation of a, of, a, of a closed circle, shutting off discussion, silencing people, telling other people that they're conspiracy theorists when in fact the conspiracy was a conspiracy to silence actual open research into a very plausible hypothesis. The consequences of this in terms of institutional decay and public la lack of trust in our healthcare institutions and, na and nationally and internationally is inestimable. 
But, you know, this this strikes me as like another sort of um, pride and fall story here. Uh, Yet another one that we've seen during the pandemic, you know, sort of in keeping with uh, Cuomo and I think to some extent uh, the beginnings of uh, Fauci now. Um, There was this this these these hashtags and statements and memes going around of I believe in science, trust the science. I love science. Um, what I think those largely meant was, was not, um, I revere the, uh, scientific process, um, or, or things like that. I think it, I think it meant I have faith in these institutions and credentialed, uh, bodies and people. And if you don't, you're crazy. Um, and, uh, therefore we are in, in different political camps. Um, and I think that is the danger now because we are facing, we are fa- face, come face to face with this ab- abundant evidence of these broken institutions. I mean, you know, one phrase that David Asher, who was now at the, at the, uh, at the Hudson Institute, who was apparently the State Department's sort of coordinator of the COVID-19 response said, he found that there was a large gain of function bureaucracy inside the US government. People who wanted this kind of research, who were eager for it, or who were eager to make it clear just how, or to, to, to uh, muddy up the question of how much gain of function research was really going on. And, and what, 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 what does that confirm? That's a weird confirmation of the deep state. I mean, it's a weird confirmation of the theory of the deep state, which by the way, was never a right-wing theory until Trump came along. It was always a left-wing theory. It was always that, that kind of notion that the federal government was, was futzing around behind the scenes and screwing with your head and doing stuff with, you know, with computers and all of that. That was left-wing conspiratorial thinking. And suddenly well, the left and liberals- the State Department. Okay, fair enough. But all, all I'm going to say is every like, time a Republican Secretary of State entered the uh, entered the yeah. foggy bottom, they had to clear house, right? For but, operating but, on their right. own, revet. right? But but what I mean by this is that is that suddenly you had people who were saying, "I have to listen to a GS15 bureaucrat." because he's not Trump. Like I have to listen to some guy who's been sitting in Bethesda, Maryland, uh, working in the public. I have to trust that every single person working at Atlanta, the CDC is a saint. Um, First of all, that's not American in general. That's not the way we tend to view government and government institutions, but it certainly isn't the way the post sixties democratic and liberal and, and radical alliances have thought about these matters as we know from Bernie Sanders and the way he talks about, you know, the, the kind of co- conspiracies between the government and the pharmaceutical companies. You know, I think what you see here is, is something like a deep state. The people who were pushing back against the mostly Trump appointed officials who were interested in this theory were typically longstanding members of the bureaucracy who predated Trump's arrival in office. And we often tend to look at these things in political terms. You know, we think that that a group is opposed to our side or opposed to the other side. But the strongest instinct in these organizations is self-preservation. You see this in the Justice Department all the time. They will they will close ranks to protect the institution from embarrassment or criticism. 
And they maybe convince themselves that this is for a good cause because they believe in the mission of the institution, but it is very much, it's very problematic for the kind of transparency we need, especially in a crisis like this. So it's, in a, in a way, it's not surprising and yet it's shocking the degree to which if, if the, what's in this article really bears out, the degree to which there were, there were, there were groups in the government who were actively trying to, to stop this, this investigation. I do think that the truth will come out on our side over time. I don't think we'll ever get the truth from the China side. Right. Well, so two, two historical things that, that strike me about this whole question of citizen science and whether you have a kind of democratization um, that the, of, of information uh, and expertise and all of that that is now making it increasingly difficult for this kind of deep state, a bureaucratic prerogative to be maintained forever. But I mean, there are historical parallels. In the 1970s, um, the, the CIA, the claim of CIA analysts in the federal government was that the Soviet Union had a rapidly growing economy. And this idea was challenged by certain academics led by Richard Pipes at Harvard, who said that he saw no evidence to suggest this was the case. And the CIA was very offended and said this, uh, what did he know, blah, 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 blah. And, and the Ford administration, if I remember this correctly, convened something it called uh, 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 Panel B or uh, something like right. that. And, and they did this research and said, the Soviet Union's economy is vastly smaller than the US government believes. Um, and uh, that, Team B, excuse me, that research turned out to be not only exactly accurate, but was the spur in part to the notion that we could spend the Soviet Union into self-destruction, which is part of the idea behind the, the Strategic Defense Initiative. That if we used our economic power to force them to chase us, they're, they're, the contradictions that George Kennan had said in the 1940s, the internal contradictions of their system would catch up with them and would, and would be destroyed. But that would not have happened had it not been for a decision not to accept this conventional wisdom of the experts inside the federal government, but to challenge it. And that then raises this other idea, which is the Israeli 10th man notion that Israel came up with in the wake of the horrifying intelligence failure that led to their um, near defeat in the Yom Kippur War in 1973, which was the idea was, if there are 10 people around a table, a minion, if you will, if you have 10 people around a table and they all agree that something is X, someone has got to step out of there and make the counter argument. Somebody has to be at the table, even if he doesn't believe it, who will pick apart the conventional wisdom that is at the table in order to make sure that nothing is being missed and nothing is, nothing is, is, is unseen. And uh, as a result of this, we are told for things that we don't know, many, many, many intelligence breakthroughs and understandings have come from this deployment of the 10th man theory. And if our experience here and in other ways, including with the kind of um, successes of citizen science that you talk about and that you've talked about in your column, Tech Commentary, published monthly in Commentary Magazine, uh, one, of our, one of our glories for the last uh, year and a half, if... If we, um, 
uh, if we do not have those kinds of voices at the table, we are going to go through these disasters and catastrophes again and again and again, simply because the bureaucratic prerogatives and the bureaucratic expectations are what they are, what they are. And, and because um, if it's a liberal and a, a conservative administration or the other way around, there are always incentives uh, to being the person who is the counter, you know, who, 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 voices the conventional wisdom and looks like a heroic, you know, a heroic defender of the truth against, against, you know, evil. And uh, we don't know what was in those Fauci emails that have been redacted uh, over the last couple of days. Well, we can say, though, that of the emails that we have seen, they are composed in a way that suggests he's well aware that everything that he writes down could be read aloud in a deposition. He's like <laughs> a creature that was that that has been fully optimized to rise through the ranks of Washington. So I'd be shocked if there was anything uh, really right, really you know, bad on, on those redactions. Nevertheless, they are conspicuous. Right. right. But once a public official becomes a, a you know instantly and and a universally lionized person, it is time to get that tenth man out there. Uh, because uh, that way lies madness, and and the and the the incentives for that guy to remain a hero, and not to ch not to switch gears or anything like that, whether it's Fauci or anybody else, or a guy like Dezak who is like the leading figure in world virology because he had aggregated all this money and handed it out, and therefore had everybody kissing his ring. That's the guy you got to watch for when trouble is at hand. You don't have to defame him. You don't have to say that he's a monster or evil. You just can't let him control the conversation. And that's part of the problem here. I would say it's not even the individual so much as the institutions. And, you know, you talk about that famous example of the, of the Team B analyzing the Soviet economy. So we had a Team B here on the lab leak, but it was not constituted within any of these institutions that we should be depending on to, to keep us safe. It was an ad hoc team B that, that assembled itself outside of these institutions, which really pulled together to suppress. Uh, one of the people in the Vanity Fair story says the whole government had something like an antibody response against Trump mentioning the lab leak, yeah. uh, uh, the lab leak possibility. And you saw that in scientific institutions and in the media. And it's and this is very, very dangerous. I've done a lot of research into uh, disasters like the oil spills or the, the space shuttle blowing up. And there's one real hallmark of institutions right before a major disaster, and that is consensus. Yes. Well, these are pieces you can read if you go to if you go to Jim's author page. Uh, at commentarymagazine.com. You can read his piece on, on, on the Deepwater Horizon spill. You can read his piece on the Alaskan earthquake of 1963. You can read his piece on a whole lot of different stuff uh, that is uh, pretty exciting and, uh, and, and, and really uh, original kind of research into the way science is done. Anyway, Jim Meggs, thank you so much for being with us as always. And for Abe, Christina, Noam, John Podhoritz, keep the candle burning.